Hello, podcast listener. This is your host, Kevin Kelly, on another episode of The Anti-Podcast. Today in the studio, we have an episode with Kevin Limp, the owner of Four Hands Brewery. And he talks about how he started, where he's going, and what he's learned along the way. <laughs> I like just that quick summary right at the beginning of the interview so you know exactly what the fuck we're going to be talking about. Uh, January has been an extremely long month. I think this is a consensus. Is it always this long? Does it always feel psychologically this long? Because for some reason in this new decade, January seems to be lasting an entire year. Tomorrow night, it's going to be January 31st. We should probably have a February Eve party at my place. Just kidding. Um, no, but for real, there's been so so many emotions and happenings over the past 30 days that... It just feels like one condensed year, and it's kind of crazy. Uh, personally, for me as well, and professionally, it's just been a lot to take in over the over the past couple weeks. But what do we do? We forge ahead because that's all you can do. There are no other options. You just keep putting your nose to the grindstone, meeting each day head on. Because if you don't, you just get swept away with the rest of the school fish. You got to push against, you got to move forward or else you're moving backwards. Uh, today with Kevin Lemp, who owns a brewery, I am proud to announce the first sponsor of this podcast is Snakebite Co. I'm very proud to announce it because it is my company. Um, let's try and come up with some engaging ad copy here. Uh, Snakebite Co., we're all about quality, consistency, and having a good time. We produce unique products for the individuals who value a quality build. The best materials, the best manufacturing, 100% made in America. That's how we've chosen to run the business. That's how we choose to make our mark. Snakebiteco.com. Follow us online on social media at Snakebiteco and uh, available everywhere. If you have a computer and a credit card, <laughs> free shipping on all orders. Check us out today. Shameless self-promotion right there, folks. Can't help it. It's a beer podcast and daddy needs to keep the lights on. Uh, if you like this podcast, please rate and review it. Share it on social media. Discuss it on your blog or your podcast or hit me up. If you'd like to advertise, reach out to me, Kevin Kelly at Kevin at anti-agency. Dot org, and we can talk about uh, you being the next sponsor on the next podcast, right? Cool. This is all coming off the top of my head. This is no pre-prepared script. I don't like to do that. Yes, it may be a little disjointed, but I'm trying to get better at this, folks. Bear with me. Today's podcast, Kevin Lemp, man, great guy. I've had the pleasure of being able to hang out with him in St. Louis uh, just casually. And when I was first coming up with the concept for this podcast, he was one of the people that I put down as someone that I wanted to talk to, to see how he has had such a massive growth over the past eight years and growing his brewery from a quote, $35,000 brand into a $1.3 million company over the course of one year. We talk about his early days as a sales rep at Gallo Winery, which led up to him being able to develop the business plan for Four Hands Brewery and eventually quit his job and take and take that on full time. Um, he, you know, it was a great timing in the way that he did it eight years ago. There was a lot of people that came up in 2011 
and he discusses that whole brewery class and how they've worked together over the years. Uh, transversely, he also talks about, transversely, is that a word? He also talks about overcoming conflict and drama and how he is drama adverse in a city that sometimes focuses on the bad things. We discuss how we can overlook that and move on. Not overlook it, but just take it in and move on and focus on the positive things. We also talk about what 2020 is going to bring, chasing trends versus originality the giant seltzer boom and what he's going to do with that, if anything, and uh, how he's excited for St. Louis, man. We both are. Things are happening. 2020 feels great. It's off to a good start, mostly, in some ways. If you're here and listening to this, that's a good sign, right? Uh, I now present to you episode 18 of the Anti-Podcast with Kevin Lemp. We made it happen. How many months has this been in planning? <laughs> Three-ish, yes, right? Yes, Three, four. Yeah. Mm. Happy to be here. Happy to have you. Thanks for coming on the show, man. So I, I saw you just got back from uh, vacation. How much was that well needed? <laughs> well needed. Yeah. Yes. And it was like, it was an actual vacation. So now with two kids, there's two different avenues, right? Yeah. With kids is a trip. Yes. With wife is vacation, right? <laughs> Just like me and Megan on the slopes, hanging out, spent four days in Colorado. Uh, Beer Fest was attached to that also, so a little work, oh, cool. a little play. It was good, but much needed. Last year was a big year for us, and 2020's teed up to be potentially the most important year in our existence. Why is that? So we just have a lot going on. Yeah, We have a lot of opportunities. We've got a lot of balls on tees. We just need to make sure that we're making like really thoughtful decisions to make sure that we're hitting it straight. Yeah. Um, I just read this week two articles from Forbes that just came out. And it was kind of trying to summarize the past 10 years of the craft brewing industry mm-hmm. and then kind of take a look at what's ahead. And I don't know if you saw those at all. I didn't. They were pretty interesting. They kind of just touched on the high points. And this doesn't have to be all about craft beer and everything. I, I want to know your story <laughs> as a St. Louis dude growing up and like how you first got into this. But I thought they were pretty interesting because I thought it was um, 2020 does feel like a touch point for a lot of craft breweries in order moving from what worked in the past uh, and then trying to like navigate this whole beverage world that's coming upon in the future. I'm sure you're, you're right in the thick of that. Yeah, I mean, you know, we do company outing, uh, kind of company top-to-top meeting every year. Mm -hmm. And two years ago was the first time that we started that meeting off by saying we're no longer a brewery. Wow. We're a supplier of premium beverage. Hmm. And that's when we launched our sister company, 1220 Spirits. Has it only been a year? So that was two years ago. Two years ago, okay. Yeah, so, you know, now we're Four Hands Brewing Company. We're 1220 Spirits. Um, You know, we've helped Scott at Sump try and figure out the best way to get cold brew and can. Mm. Um, we're looking at two other opportunities moving into 2020 as well, which we're really excited about. And it's making sure that we're really being well-rounded and thoughtful and creative and passionate, but, you know, also not just being so stubborn and Mm. saying we're only a brewery, right? It's like our only passion that started out as our main passion, right? That's how we were founded. Right. That was our main and original path. It's also okay to have some forks in the road and just making sure that you're taking that right path to be successful. Yeah. 
and it, it's successful not singularly. It's mm-hmm. successful as like this company that we've created and built, and we have forty four hyper passionate teammates that you know those decisions directly affect them. Yeah, and their well being totally. And you know what we offer now, and making sure that we can continue to offer that mm-hmm. and build on that and be better tomorrow. Yeah. Um, it, it, and that's due to decisions that we're making today and or have made two years ago. And I'm really grateful we made that decision two years ago to open up a distillery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, from my perspective, I think I would be struggling with worrying about diluting your main brand mm-hmm. and like your core followers while also balancing, you know, the potential for growth in a different uh, area or a different market. Yeah, man, and I feel like that's why we made the decision. There are two ways to look at this when you're looking at growth and when you're looking at line extensions or product mm-hmm. development or brand building within a single portfolio, right? We could have had a 1220, or I'm sorry, a Four Hands Brewing Company and then a Four Hands Distillery. And we made the decision not to do that yeah. because Four Hands has its path, it has its ethos, it has its flag that it's waving. Right. And 1220, that path is going to look different. It does look different. Sure. It, the, the narrative is different. And we figured that we're not a one-trick pony. I think that we're pretty good at what we do. We're very thoughtful, we're passionate, and that we could build a brand around our distillery that had as much depth mm-hmm. as the brewery. And we need to allow that brand to have some breathing room. Yeah. That's why we, we, to make sure that we didn't dilute forehands, right? Or we didn't have customers saying, I don't know, it's like, they're just doing something a little off kilter or something that maybe I personally don't agree with. Um, So when we look at brand building, we're looking at building silos Mm -hmm. and then filling those silos with passionate people um, and surrounding ourselves with passionate people. And so we, can hopefully make as many good decisions as possible. And, yeah. you know, there's always a couple bad ones, but sure. learn from those and those hopefully they're not monster bad, des- <laughs> bad decisions. Um, but, you know, that's kind of how I grew up in the industry also. Mm. Um, yeah, you were in booze before this as well, correct? I was with Gala Winery for a decade before yes. jumping off to do this. Gala Winery is Anheuser-Busch of wine. Yeah. Right? Largest family-owned winery based in Modesto, California. Okay. They have everything from Boone's Farm and Bartles and James to $400 bottles of Shiraz wow. to New Amsterdam gin and vodka and brandy. Oh, wow. and Well, yeah, when I think of them, I think of those giant uh, hob- uh, wino jugs. Rossi. The, yes. <laughs> the, this, that's them, right? Gallo yeah, Rossi. Is. Yeah, Carlo Rossi. Oh, I mean, if you go to the grocery <laughs> store right now and you walk up and down that aisle, they have more share than anybody. Wow. Um, but it... Uh, I just learned so much from them. Yeah. Right. I mean, they gave me all the widgets in order to feel confident in going off on my own. So how'd this all start? Like, obviously growing up in St. Louis, beer is in the back, you know, background of all of our lives. Yeah. Uh, did you play soccer? Played soccer. Yeah. There you go. Uh, go to the Catholic (laughs) church maybe. No. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Did all that. That's uh, yeah, that's the, that's the pretty standard, uh, um, you know, narrative of a lot of people that grew up here. Yeah. Um, and what was it like? Would you what, do you remember like your first beer experience? I, I distinctly remember mine. My mom was like, "Here, try this." You know, and yeah, in the eighties and seventies, it's much different thing. <laughs> you know, I would say that I remember my first beer experience, and it wasn't the first time I had a beer. Yeah, um, but it was the first time I tasted 
a full flavored beer. Oh, okay. And it was a Poliner. Mm, and mm-hmm. um, I was just blown away. Was it the Hefeweizen? It or? was the Hefe. Yeah. I was like, I've never tasted anything this delicious, this yeah. complex from a malt beverage standpoint. And from there, it was a New Belgium Fat Tire. Mm, mm-hmm. And that was like my second experience. Yeah. And then it kind of led me down a, a bit of a path. Yeah, so. that, I remember, I think Blue Moon was probably not my first. Sure. And like a lot of people's first craft yeah. beer. And, uh, you know, get that pitcher with the orange slice in it. And you're like, oh, this is different and unique than, you know, a pitcher of Bud Light. And it's amazing what Blue Moon has been able to build. Yeah. It's fascinating. When you look at Nielsen IRI, which is all scans through grocery, right? Mm-hmm. All scans through the register. Not what product has been sold in. It's what has been sold out. Yeah. When you look at the state, Blue Moon is the second largest brewery in the state within the craft category. Wow. Behind Boulevard. It's nuts. That's crazy. I mean, it's pretty much one brand, 18 different SKUs. Yeah. Right? But that unfiltered wheat, it's just a monster. They've got so many points of distribution. So many people had that first experience Mm -hmm. with that Blue Moon. And people go back to it. Yeah, they do. I mean, I remember getting a little saturated with it at some point in my 20s. And then having it maybe, I don't know, four years ago. And I'm like, oh, this is this tastes like nostalgia. Well, people <laughs> move away from it, right? Yeah. And that's okay. Like, that's what the benefits me. Mm-hmm. But you need the brand to get people into the category. Yeah. And then once they're in the category and they enjoy that experience, they're going to be a little bit more willing to shop around. Mm-hmm. And then our goal is hopefully when they find our brand that we have enough innovation and creativity that you can somewhat become loyal. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like loyalty is a little bit gone now within the craft segment. Um, Brand-wise, I feel like it's more style loyal. Yeah. Um, But that was also one of the big missions for us when building Citywide. How do we bring back some of that loyalty? Sure. And that's interesting because it's mainly a branding exercise to a certain extent. And what you're doing with the proceeds for that. You know, you're telling a story that transcends just buying the beer which I don't think a lot of beer has done. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that's got to be one of the more successful uh, beers that you've made, or if not the most successful. Yeah, it's the most successful. Right. Yeah, it's our number one. Uh, we've produced more citywide than any other brand. Right. Um, and it's really only available in St. Louis. Like It is statewide now, but yeah. uh, mainly draft outside of St. Louis. Uh-huh. Um, so it's been a, a tremendous win for us. And, and I would say a win for the city, you know, like that's the one, the brand that gives me goosebumps when I talk about it. Yeah. It'll be for citywide will be for this coming April. And wow. by that time we'll have given back over $200,000 to a local nonprofit. That's a tremendous amount of money for us. It's, it's almost like its own brand in a way. It almost stands as, uh, as its own thing. We, heard that a lot when we first launched it. I, yeah. I feel like the customers kind of gotten used to it a little bit. For sure. Yeah. But it's four years old now, right? But when we first opened up, it was, or when we first launched that brand, it was Citywide Brewery. Mm-hmm. And we took that as like a major compliment. Yeah. That's pretty cool. That is cool. Um, it's almost like a subhead to four hands. Yeah. The I mean, it is. Brewery. It's a brand within a brand. Yeah. So we, yeah, we have um, Pale Ale and we have the Pilsner and uh, we have some fun things that we're going to do with that brand all th- also this year. We're kind of playing statewide. with like 
packaging format with that brand. Like we don't really want to come out with variants necessarily. Statewide's a little bit different, but kind of on the same path. Mm-hmm. Um, but we want to play with package size sure. in order to kind of allow us to continue to tell that citywide story. 2019, we did the seven ounce glass pony. Yep. Very retro inspired. Yes. It was kind of fun. Um, and so that's our, the platform was citywide. We don't want to get into an apricot version. We don't want to go on draft, right? We yeah. always want to make sure that we keep it in the can. We feel that can is a silent salesman. Mm-hmm. You're at a bar, you're at a restaurant, you're at a venue, you see that can. It really pops, we feel like. Yep. Hopefully somebody will will purchase it because of that. Um, but we're looking at just like creative opportunities to work with local artists and tinker with some different packages to sure. continue the story. I, as uh, From a design perspective, I was amazed at how it became such a, an icon uh, along with the usual suspects of Ted Drew's, uh, you know, toasted raviolis, emos. And for, you know, to be honest, Citywide is now up in that icon status. And as a St. Louisan, that's a fucking awesome thing. <laughs> like, that's kind of the hope, right? To I be mean, able to just make, make something more that, proud. Right. It's ser- it really couldn't, man. Yeah. I mean, it is like... It's the most important project we've ever done. Yeah. And our team really feels the same way. Listen, when, when we opened up, there are 1,400 breweries. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to today, there's over 8,000 breweries. <laughs> to me, that shows it's not very hard to open up a brewery. Yeah. But how do you separate yourself, right? Like, mm-hmm. what is that ethos? We've always wanted to be a pillar of the community, and this is our opportunity to be that pillar. Mm-hmm. We know that our pillar is not going to be as massive as in Anheuser-Busch or whatever that other organization may be. But I think it can be just as important yeah. and very cautious about how we tell that story. Um, we're just not like a big check brand, mm-hmm. you know, and no offense to anybody that, that is doing that. We just want to be more subtle yeah. about what that philanthropy looks like and, and how we go about it. But we also want to make sure that the customer knows, you know, like every yeah. case we sell, we do, donate a dollar. You know, this is our nonprofit that we're working with right now, and it also gives us an opportunity to put the spotlight spotlight on that nonprofit. Yeah, so that they can tell their story. Um, I think there's a big difference between being virtuous and signaling that you're virtuous. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it's um, it's something that we speak about often. Mm-hmm. Uh, so walk me back. What what did you go to school for? What was your initial focus uh, in college? Uh, so I mean, did you know what you wanted to do? No, who I, does? Okay. I don't I know. Mean, really, <laughs> Some people I mean, do. Bill Gates. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, you know, college for me wasn't really the greatest experience. Mm-hmm. Um, it was from you know a friendship standpoint. Yeah. Um, it was from like maybe uh, an understanding of what life can look like standpoint, but like you know, scholastically, it's just like kind of wasn't my gig. Yeah. I got through it. I majored in marketing. I got a minor in psychology. Mm. And when I look back at that, I feel like that relationship is pretty important. Yeah. Marketing and psychology. Totally. Um, yeah. And so from there, um, I went to work at Glaciers Midwest, which is now Southern Wine and Spirits. And mm. I went into that the Gala Wine Division. Was that just kind of like, yeah, you know, I'm St. Louis. I know beer. I just went through college for four years. <laughs> I can... Uh, I can help sell this stuff or, you know, I, I felt like it was a category that was, I was interested in. Mm -hmm. Um, if you're going to sell something, selling wine at at that age felt like it'd be something that was kind of fun until it was gala winery and then the craft beer portfolio also. 
Mm-hmm. So that was my portfolio. Um, and so I did that. What so were some of the beers that they had that you were selling? So we had Odell, Bells. Okay. Yep. Those were kind of our, our two big ones. Sierra Nevada was a big one. Uh, we had Polliner, uh, which always kind of <laughs> brought me back to that original experience. Uh, it, w- it wasn't a super broad portfolio, but it had depth. Yeah. So sales rep for two and a half years, division manager for about two and a half years, went to go work in Illinois, managed the state of Illinois for Gallo, um, and then came back, managed the state of Missouri for Gallo Craft Beer, and then during that time jumped off and opened up the brewery. I sat in a sales meeting as a sales rep really like a month in. Mm -hmm. And um, I also early on, I decided this wasn't a job, it was a career. I, I did really enjoy it. I took to it. Sure. Um, about that same time, I sat in a sales meeting, and it was really a pretty awful sales meeting. It was just like it, I just didn't appreciate like the tone, um, the presentation in general. And I remember sitting back and just thinking to myself, "Learn everything that you need to learn." Yeah. And when the time is right, you see the opportunity. Just jump off and do it on your own. I always kind of had that spirit. I always felt like I wanted to do my own thing. Mm-hmm. I just didn't know exactly what that was going to be. Sure. But I remember having that conversation internally. And it took me a decade. Wow. It took me 10 years for me to really feel like I knew everything that I needed to know. And that was being on Gallo payroll and really being able to see behind the curtain and understand what it was like to be on that supplier side. And then while, you know, the last six months working for Gallo, that's when I started writing the business plan. That's awesome. So that's, um, I talk about that a lot. You have to have a period of sacrifice or like a phase of sacrifice and, and you know, beating down your ego just a bit so that you can learn what you need to learn while also getting paid at the same time. Absolutely. And I think that that's a, um, a step that a lot of people want to skip these days because it's, uh, they see the independence and they see the, the, you know, the social media aspect of being an entrepreneur or having your own brand. And they're like, oh, I can't wait to get to that. God, it's so much harder than that. And that's not even like, <laughs> it, it's nothing. I mean, no. it, I, okay, it's not nothing, but it is such a small, just eensy teensy bit of that. And all of the, all of the hard, long days and nights and figuring out all the things you just absolutely don't know at all <laughs> and starting again from square one, like college to me is... When you finish college, then you're ready to start learning mm. um, because now you have all these theories that have been baked in from people that may or may not know what they were actually talking about. Then you start to get your feet wet doing the things. And there is a whole nother learning period for the next 10 years, eight yeah. to 10 years of where you're putting that into practice and like, right, that's not exactly how it goes in a textbook. And people don't use three letter acronyms that often. <laughs> I do my best learning observing. Yeah. And really that's what I did for that decade, right? I mean, I sure. was very like hands-on, feet on the street. Um, you know, another thing I, I feel like at every time I, I was promoted, I I learned more than I needed to. Mm. You know, I took that opportunity to learn more than I needed to just be successful at that job. Yeah. Because I knew I needed all of that information in order to do it on my own. So this was then, what year was it? That which what that you were developing the business plan. It's like two thousand nine. Okay, and yep. how did you? I've always been pretty business plan adverse, but I feel like if you're seeking out funding, like you may have been doing with a craft brewery startup, that you have to have 
the intention. You know, I always look at it as trying to be a psychic. Mm-hmm. Like, how do I know how much I'm going to sell? <laughs> and all of it is speculation, of course. Of course. Yeah. Um, and I think having having a well-formed business plan is helpful if you're trying to get that bank to give you that money in order to buy that equipment in order to get that, you know, your first run out there. But aside from that, it to me, it's like, you know, how, how'd that go? Like, did you just Google certain things or talk to people or talk to a lawyer about forming a business plan for a brewery? I mean, a little bit of all of the above, yeah. right? I mean, you're doing your own due diligence online. Uh, you're finding resources locally that can help you. You're talking to craft breweries at that time, right? Right, That can help you. Um, and then found a mentor that kind of helped me put cool. all the puzzle pieces together. Sure. Um, but yeah, the writing of the business plan. And when you're trying to find money in 2010, it's not easy. Right? No. 2010 economically was not. No, man. We weren't in a great spot. What year did you quit your job? In so, no, 2011. Okay. So I would already uh, sign the lease. I was in the process. I was building out. Gotcha. And I was Smart. still at my job. Yeah. And that was really one of the hardest parts also, Kevin. Like when I put in my notice, it was one of the hardest decisions I ever had to make. Mm. Not only because of what, like what this new path looked like. I loved my job then. Mm. I loved it. Mm-hmm. You know, and it was, I was in a position where I, when I sat down with Randy and let him know what I was doing. Uh, he was pretty shocked also. And it wasn't like two weeks and out. I was like, what do you need, man? Like, I'm, I'm here for you. Mm-hmm. You know, we've been doing this whole thing for a long, long time together. Um, so I think I stayed there like an extra four months just to make oh, sure wow. that who came in and took my position was locked and loaded, ready to go. Sure. Um, yeah, but I mean, business plan, it was, it took a long time. It took a a lot of patience. Yeah. Um, reformatting, rewriting. Mm-hmm. And then what you say, like when we come to a production production or projection standpoint, it's such a guess, right? right. Like you understand like kind of cost analysis, cost of goods, mm-hmm. uh, you understand margin. Um, but thankfully we hit our five year growth plan, like the middle of year two. Wow. So. Um, what was the biggest risk in all of that aside from just getting the money? Would it have been... Like, did you have your brewing partner already? I, yeah, I, so, I, yeah, yeah, we found Will. Okay. Um, um, and Will came on board to to help us kind of navigate through those initial mm-hmm. years and just building out of the brewery. Sure. I've never built a brewery before. Right. I've never <laughs> brewed before. Right. Um, I wasn't a home brewer. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of puzzle pieces that needed to fit in. Yeah. Um, and I feel like, it happened, you know, not easy, right. uh, but we made it work. Well, that's interesting. You weren't a brewer, but you were educated on the, pr- like, pretty much every other aspect of it. Yeah, I mean, I would say this industry specifically, I mean, it is, as long as you've got a great product, mm-hmm. it's relationship-driven. Totally. Right? And yeah. um, I had been in this industry for a long time, a decade. I had a lot of good relationships. I felt like it would be a little bit easier mm-hmm. to succeed due to those relationships. I also understood what it was like to be on a supplier side. I very much knew what it was like to work inside a wholesaler. I could kind of navigate through those hallways a little bit easier. Um, And that is one of the pieces of the puzzle that just a lot of people don't know. No, yeah, I think tough. I feel like there's so many breweries that start up that are just motivated home brewers uh, that that spend so much time and, and, and losing momentum 
in trying to figure out all those things that you had experience in prior. And it's, uh, you know, it's sad to see. And also, I think it's a timing issue. I think your timing was really good. Like, there was that new wave of craft breweries that was coming around. And probably, how many were there in St. Louis when you first opened your doors? Not a lot. Right. Yeah, I don't know the exact number, I don't but not a lot. I mean, that class of 2011, like Second Shift opened 2010. Yeah. And then we had Perennial, um, Civil Life, yeah. Urban, and us mm-hmm. all open up within 12 months of each other. <laughs> That's a lot of competition happening all at one time, if you want to look at it as competition. Did you know those guys at all before that? or A little. Okay. I look at it more as, man, what a spotlight yeah. came onto our category real quick. Sure. And how many people were introduced to craft beer in 2011? Right. Probably a lot. Mm-hmm. The amount of attention that the category got yeah. in 2011 and in 2012 was something fierce. And so I always looked at it as a tremendous benefit to just be a part of that wave. Mm-hmm. And you look at all four or five of us now, everybody's still doing good. You know, I think that we all kind of found our own niche and we're uh, for the most part, staying in lanes. And I mean, that's getting a little blurred just with what craft beer has done, yeah. mm-hmm. right? I mean, you go from 1,400 of anything to 8,000 in eight years. Well, it's almost... It just looks different. Yeah, it's almost less about the individual brands and more about the collective production of the city in a strange way. Well, and I'm excited about that right now, too. Yeah. So we have a lot of good going on right now in St. Louis. Yeah, you know, and... Even from other industry standpoint, I think maybe it is a post-recession thing. I quit my job pre-recession, which shows my foresight. But uh, <laughs> after the recession, I think in the spirit of trying to, I don't know, rally the troops, to put an awful phrase, but like to rally momentum, everybody was kind of helpful with everybody. I feel like even even the marketing firms that I was working with are, or technically competitors we're like, there's plenty of business to go around. There's plenty of people that will drink beer. There's plenty of people interested in different beers. And there no longer has to be this like cutthroat competitiveness. And I feel like that's how this all started as well. Yeah. You know, within that 2011 class, I mean, it was, you know, at that time, I think um, craft beer represented around 11 or 12% of total market. Mm. BA's goal at that time was to have a 20% share by 2020. And we all looked around and said, hey, if we can get to 20% market share, yeah, none of us are going to be able to make all that beer, right. right? It's like, let's work as a team and rise the tide and build the category. I think a lot of that happened. Yeah. So, no, it's important. I mean, I think it's important in any industry to to work close with those within the category. Sure. Educate the consumer and... So what yeah. was uh, what were some of the first beers that came out? I'm trying to remember. It was single speed? Yes, we had single speed. We had cast iron oatmeal brown, divided sky, which is a rye IPA, um, reprise, which was a centennial red, uh-huh. which we yep. discontinued reprise when we created citywide. Yeah, uh, which proved to be a good decision, <laughs> um, and that was based on the hop. Mm. Um, and those were the core four. How hard was it? Uh, what was the theme overall? I think I re- remember reading something about tattoo-inspired beer labels. You know, we just wanted somebody that had, um, I don't know, a little bit of an edge to the their art. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amber Patton was the artist that we hired to originally create our, our logo mm-hmm. in those four core beers. Yeah, and then the sli- hands. Yep. yep. Slightly after that, I met Josh Rowan. Mm-hmm. 
and the then like <laughs> game changed. Yeah. I mean, really, he is, um, he's so much fun to work with. Yeah, I mean, really cool. within everything I do, uh, working with Josh and our brewery team and creating, you know, that life cycle of brand and mm-hmm. seeing it on shelf like that to me, that marketing side is what I have the most fun with. And Josh is just such a dream to work with. Yeah, he's so creative. He's so talented. He's a unique soul. For he sure. can, and he can do anything. Yeah. Right? He and can. With a smile on his face. Like, <laughs> it's just great. Yeah. So, yeah, we, uh, we have a ton of fun together. That's cool. And so he ended up taking over what she had started. And that wasn't sort like of. a higher fire type thing. No, she was no. like kind of at capacity. Uh-huh. We were looking to be pretty ambitious with the amount of labels that we were putting out. And yeah, Josh was uh, introduced to us and like we've been working together seven and a half years. That's crazy. What, so. what was like the initial success that was kind of like, oh shit, this is working. <laughs> From what standpoint? Aside from getting the money. <laughs> I mean, honestly, that was like, that was yes. the big one. Yeah. Um, we had to really analyze how we were going to go to market. Yeah. Uh, you know, so when we opened up, we only had so much capacity. Mm-hmm. We had four 15-barrel bright tanks. We had a 15-barrel brew house. Uh, so we made the decision to open up draft only. Did you have the tasting room? We right did. Now? Okay. Yep, tasting room as well. But just in terms of like physical equipment, mm-hmm. we weren't able to make all that much beer. First year, I think we did 1,400 barrels. All of that was draft, all keg, all sure. on premise. Wow. So once we made that decision, um, you know, one of those first like fist pump moments was bringing the canter on board. Nick yeah, was like, yeah. no doubt, hire number three. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> you know, as my discipline was off premise, mm-hmm. Nick's discipline was on premise. Mm-hmm. Um, and like one of the better human beings on the planet also, and just so good at what he does Mm -hmm. that that was a fist pump moment. And so we took that first year and we had four five, six, seven, maybe eight beers throughout that year draft only. And, you know, some of the accounts that we were able to get on within that first year, which we're still on today have allowed us to build the brand, Mm. right? Like they were some of the major gatekeepers in order to help build our brand. Um, and without that initial success, what were some of those accounts? Just local. I mean, I don't like Blueberry Hill. Yeah. Right. Like getting on draft at Blueberry Hill your first year. Like that's a big fucking deal. Man. Yeah. And it's how many of- <laughs> people are introduced to our brand by Blueberry Hill? Mm. A ton. Right. So just some very important on-premise players uh, that we worked with really closely. We still work with really closely. And that has really allowed that path. Sure to take. Yeah. And one of the things that you've mentioned to me before is how much, um, sustainability you've found in a small, not in a small region, but in a singular region and how that's allowed you guys to focus on the brand without having to worry about distribution to everywhere. And I thought that was a pretty, I don't even remember where you told me that, but it was just like, that's pretty cool. And I think that's also, uh, anecdote for a a lot of things in the contemporary age to where if you can appeal to a lot of people in a small per capita area, say St. Louis, Kansas City, Midwest, then you can be pretty successful in your own own right, depending on what you're trying to build. Yeah, we took that, you know, inch wide, mile deep approach. Yeah. Right. Just like a lot of beer and not a lot of space. Yep. And even to this day, going on your nine, we sell 83, 84% of all of our beer mm-hmm. in Missouri. Wow. 
That's incredible. So it's just like a, a tremendous amount of what we do stays within the state. Yeah. Um, it makes us, it's a lot easier for us to manage that. And right. not only manage it, it's a lot easier for us to grow that. Yeah. You know, if, I feel like if you're taking that opposite approach where you've got a little bit of beer in a lot of places, really being able to manage that mm-hmm. and put a proper plan in place and what that next year looks like and programming and pricing, you need a, a, a division, yeah. a team in order to do that. Um, where, you know, we sell beer, it's really Illinois and Missouri. Mm-hmm. And we're opening up Wisconsin next week. Uh, we're in Nashville also, wow. which has been a great player for us. We opened up Nashville last year. Uh, we're going to open up Nashville for Spirits in a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are going to be kind of like really the markets that we focus on: Wisconsin, Illinois, Missouri, Tennessee. And how do you how do you break through into these different markets? Do you have to have uh, obviously a distributor relationship? Yep. But then, is it aside from being on premise and uh, in the locations? Just talking to people. I mean, it really comes down to like what you're saying, a relationship kind of game. It does, you know, and it also helps to have feet in the street, right? And yeah. so like Ian is our uh, sales manager in Chicago. Uh, he's going to kind of bridge that gap into Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a pretty robust sales team in St. Louis. We've got you know, two guys in Kansas City. You know, that missing link is Nashville right now. Sure. But with spirits going in, we feel like we'll probably make that move in 2020. Um, you know, and now we're using the brewery yeah. to fuel the distillery. Right. Right. It's so like we, I, we're in Nashville, beer's doing really well. Mm-hmm. So now we're presenting to that wholesaler or distilled spirit portfolio. And really trying, that's going to be a lot of the emphasis that we look at in 2020, sure. where there's 8,000 breweries. There really aren't a lot of companies doing canned cocktails. Yeah, There's not a lot of local companies or even regional companies doing Amaro and Aperitif and seasonal gin. So that's what we're really trying. We're trying to attach the distillery to the success of the brewery to kind of keep pushing. Are there rules in place to when you're forming these new relationships that like, you know, I don't even know the basics behind uh, how you can get into a, a new bar and replace another tap handle. Or, you know, is there like, in the record industry, there's the infamous payola. What but is like, that? Well, payola is where... Uh, like pay to play? Pay to play. Yeah. I mean, that exists in our world, but no, you're not supposed to. It, it's very frowned upon. Okay. And the TTV like regulates that. And, um Yes. I mean, I would say like it's relationships at a local level, it's relationships, sure. right? And we kind of hypermanage that uh, when you get out of market, especially when you don't have a sales rep, Yeah, you lean on your wholesaler, Yep. right? And so like that relationship is as important as any relationship we have out in the market. And there's just the, you know, kind of like the hope and the promise that this new brand is going to outperform whatever isn't as performing as well. On well, that location? When we sit down and meet with wholesalers, we say, hey, this is our portfolio. Mm-hmm. This is the one brand I want you to carry, which for us is Incarnation, mm-hmm. which is an IPA, all Mosaic hops. It's the one that overperforms in every market outside mm-hmm. of our home market. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's our number two seller even at home. We say, this is the one you have to carry. Here's our portfolio. Let's taste through it. Mm-hmm. What can work in the market and what fills a void in your portfolio? Sure. Right? It's like, what gives you more bullets in your gun when you go out? to make those presentations. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. Yeah. We're not like super stuck on saying like, here's our core portfolio. You have to have <laughs> this. Right. And yeah. we say our one year on skew is going to be incarnation. Mm-hmm. And then here's some seasonal drivers. And then here's more of this like super premium seasonal portfolio. And we more like to lean on that mm. portfolio 
because it is something maybe a little bit different than it is what is being done at their local level. Sure. Um, yeah, so we kind of look it's at such, it the well, other way. It's such an interesting process because in, in some respects it's just word of mouth or like people traveling to these other cities yeah. from St. Louis and, and you know, just a, 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 honestly like a pollination process of getting the word out there slowly and having it appear than having, you know, people, your, your salesmen in the city go there, rep the brand, do events. Yep. Like it, it's, um, I don't know, from that sort of respect, it's just, it seems like a, obviously a lot of work, but kind of old school in another way as well. It is, but that's also why we sell 83% of our beer in Missouri, <laughs> right? Because right? it's <laughs> close. Mean, it's close. <laughs> I mean, I would just rather hyper-focus on our local market. Yeah. And, um, I mean, and it's more profitable sure, that way, sure. right? Like you don't have to worry about freight. Right. The state tax in Missouri is the lowest in the country. Yeah. Right. We pay six cents a barrel in state tax in Missouri. Wow. That same liquid amount in Tennessee is a dollar 32. I mean, there's uh, there's some tremendous benefits uh, from being a mile down the road from Anheuser-Busch. Sure. Six cents a gallon for a state tax is one because of Because of their distributorship and their tax breaks that they instituted from... All the lobbying that they've done over the last <laughs> X amount of years yeah. directly affects me. Did you... Uh, I'm slightly obsessed with the AB history, uh, which is fascinating to me, especially yeah. since it's right down the street. Yeah. And I grew up and it impacted my life. Um, my mom was the legal guardian for the second private secretary... And so we would end up, my mom was friends with Trudy Bush mm. and we'd go there like on Christmas and, and, and go on, you know, go to Grant's farm. We lived right by Grant's farm. So we'd go to the mansion and wow. I was able to run around like all the floors of this place. I didn't know it obviously cause you're just a kid and you're like, yeah, beer. You don't know how big things are. And then you grow up and you start to be like, oh my God, this city was built, literally built on beer. After after its initial you know industrial phase and period, Anheuser Busch was the largest company in the world at one point. Yeah, it's nuts. It's insane. And so, you know, you can't really ignore that whole legacy when you're starting up your own beer. It, how did it like, or did it at all influence or inform you? Like, because you just grow up with it being so omnipresent. You're like, oh, I can sponsor my own soccer team now, or. I can have, you know, things that my dad would have had back in the day. We can make them and they can represent our own company now. Yeah, I'm a geek you know, for that kind of nostalgia when it comes to, uh, you know, creating something, obviously. I mean, I feel like, uh, yeah, multiple things. You know, first, my last name's Lemp. Yeah. No relation to the old Lemp dynasty. Right. But when I was really I looking didn't want to bring it up. at spots <laughs> for the brewery. Yeah. I spent so much time at Old Lent Brewery. Sure. Which yeah. I'm pretty fascinated by that story Fuck also. Yeah, it's insane. Yes. And to have both of those titans in a single yeah. industry be across the pond from each other, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're 55 cuts in that was not even there. They're both just looking at each other <laughs> in Falstaff down the road. It's <laughs> right, right. Lemp sold Falstaff to Grisadick. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. And man, how do you get, how, that, that's a lot of power. Yeah. And one city 
in one beverage, right? In one category. Yeah. That dynamic to me is so fascinating. Um, Have you ever read Bitter Brew? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, when I couldn't put that book down, I'm like, somebody is going to get the rights for this story, and when they do and they tell it right, it's going to be fascinating. Yeah. Yes. It, well, and you know, when we go back to to Citywide, I mean, Citywide was very much inspired by Anheuser Busch. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, very much so. Yeah. Um, and you know, both from a branding. Mm-hmm. Like a stylistic branding standpoint, mm-hmm. where everything we do for the most part is pretty busy. Yeah, citywide, there's a lot of Simple, white space. Straightforward, right? Um, the philanthropy, also, you know. I mean, I don't know if AB's ever had anything where like a, a X amount per case, but I don't know the. This is right, but I would say that they're probably one of the more philanthropic family-run companies of the generation, right? Sure. Like back when it was back still the run yeah. by the family. It was the best job to have, right? Like, well, they had so many verticals, you know, the credit union, yeah. uh, you know, the shipping and, and the and the railways, even, you know, how they built that all up. Yeah, and it was it was way more than just beer, you know. I, I believe they were even at one point making their own bottles and everything. And it's just like, okay, this is this is fan. Like, it blows my mind. It's a, it's a true landmark of America's capitalistic history. Yeah, when everybody, anybody from out of town comes by the brewery and they're doing a brewery tour, mm-hmm. we always say you have to go down to AB. Sure, Just yeah. go, even if you don't want to do the full tour, just drive around the campus. Yeah. It's nuts. It is. So, yeah, no, it um, it also, you know, we talk about, like, if you grew up in St. Louis, you're a fan of the Cardinals, and mm-hmm. as you get to a certain age, your palate's ready for beer. <laughs> and uh, so I think that that kind of, that helped along the journey as well. Yeah. Um uh, this, aside from that, you know, it's like you also don't want to live underneath the shadow of it as, as well. You know, build your own story. Hopefully have a lot less drama. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, uh, I, I just feel that like, um, sorry, I just got a brain fart while I was reaching for this glass of <laughs> beer that you brought me. <laughs> um, what, aside from, you know, going out to these other markets, um can you still point to one of the things that was kind of the tipping point for the brand? Like the acceptance of, you know, you're talking about Blueberry Hill yeah, taking in some. Was there a certain number? Or uh, when you started canning, was yeah. that just another step in the, you know, another brick in the road that you were just... I mean, I think that we have been fortunate to, you know, not be controlled by like a board or mm-hmm. anything, right? Like we're able to make decisions very quickly. Sure. Um, and so we opened up the brewery draft only, like we spoke about. That next year we went into 22 ounce bombers. The entire time we were growing. Oh, yeah. You know, it was looking at like, what can we handle from a capacity standpoint and what gives us the most profit, mm-hmm. right? And let's take that profit and reinvest it. So we went from draft only to draft and bomber. Um, and then we decided to discontinue that bomber because we felt like a 12-ounce four-pack would give us more volume. Mm-hmm. That was one of our mistakes. That didn't happen. Uh, that third year, we brewed more beer. We sold twice as much as we did in year two. Uh, but we sold the exact same amount of 12-ounce four-packs <laughs> as we did bomber. Oh, so wow. we immediately pivoted and bought the canning line. Sure. And that's when we went from... Like seven thousand barrels to fourteen thousand barrels in a year, 
that I feel like was one of the better decisions we made. We made it really quickly. Was it 2015 or what year would that have been? 2014. 2014. Yep, 2014. Okay. Yeah, and so, and I feel like that kind of, again, like gave us a new path. Yeah. Um, I, you know, locally there were cans being done, but I don't believe like an entire portfolio mm-hmm. at that point. Um, and so, yeah, we pushed in, we went pretty much all in on cans. Um, and it's really worked for us. Was there ever like a wobbly moment, like an oh shit moment of like, uh, uh, I don't know if this is going to work like I envisioned it? No. That's great. I mean, really, man. I mean, I think that you just have to, you make decisions with confidence. Yeah. And knowing that if it doesn't work, that you have enough confidence in yourself and in your team to, to pivot. figure it out. Just figure it out. Yeah. You know, we just had a, our, team meeting and at the end it's like hey we've got all these things going on right we've got all this opportunity and all we have to do is be the very best Mm. that's all we have to do (laughs) we only have to be the best yeah and i'm being pretty serious about that yeah you know it's like we have such a great plan Mm -hmm. we have such a great team Mm -hmm. i think we have a thoughtful portfolio we just have to be the very best that we can every single day Sure. And sometimes we stub our tail. Of course, everybody yeah. does. But then how do we react when that happens? Right? And being the best is like, what does that mean? Right? Like, are we doing everything we can every day in order to make sure that our team is set up for success? Yeah. And kind of like blurring the line. And like, we don't necessarily have to have like these certain departments. We do, but just like in politics, let's cross the aisle. Let's make sure that we're helping everybody out to make sure. sure that we're not looking singularly at our specific title or job, but that we're making sure that the people next to us are being as successful as possible. Yeah. And if we can lend a helping hand in order to make sure that that's being done, mm-hmm. we need to do that. That's interesting. So how much, what do you say about like ownership too? How do you identify like uh, having employees feel like they are part of the company? Uh, aside from hiring good people, I think that's the other thing is, you know, and I guess ownership would be a morale yeah. issue, um, which, you know, I think the outsider perspective is that, oh, it's a brewery. Of course, they got great morale. <laughs> yeah. And I would say 94% of the time we do. Mm-hmm. But there's always times where you have to get together back as a group. Sure. Or I need to sit back and reflect. Yeah. And I, I try and do that a lot. Where people just get too far away from doing their own job and not talking to other people and realizing that this is kind of a family. Yeah, you know, or in, like I take all blame on any of that all the time. Mm-hmm. That is my responsibility, right? That's my responsibility to make sure that we're setting up a very sustainable environment sure. for our team to foster and grow. Yeah. And I feel like we give a lot. We also ask a lot. Yeah. You know, and that's why we're here. And it's, it's, it's finding the people and working with the people and, you know, also making sure that like everybody I hope inside the building knows that if I ask them to do something, mm-hmm. they know that I would do that Yeah. or they have seen me do that. Sure, sure, sure. Right. Like I'm not the first one in or the last one out, but they see me there early in the morning and late at night Yeah. and I'll come back after dinner. Right. Right. Like I'm not sitting on a keyboard at my house, just kind of like getting stuff done and popping in and having a beer. Like I'm extremely active and involved in what happens. And I think that that gains respect from the team. Yeah, I do too. Um, I think it's key to the business that you're in. Um, Somebody was asking me why I like Brennan's so much. It's one of my favorite bars. Yeah. I said, well, it's because he's always there. Yeah. You know, and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, you know. That's up to him to answer. But the same goes for uh, Whiskey Ring. 
Yeah. John Jorn. And it, one of the it's, best guys. You know him and you know that he's there quite a bit. And I go there with the hope that I might run into him and sure. have a beer with him. Yep. And I think the same thing, the same kind of ethos goes for you uh, and Nick, obviously, in promoting the brand. It's like, you know, those guys, they're out and about. They're not, you know, they're not doing anything that's high flutin'. They're not in some other va- back VIP room. They're hanging out with everybody and yeah. trying to get them to, to see what they see about this brand. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things about our brand that I'm most um, just passionate about is that none of us have an ego. Right. There's, yeah. We have an ego free company. That's awesome. Um, and we just work hard, man. We nose to the grindstone, you know, help each other out, be hyper passionate, be Which thoughtful and be caring and yeah. be loving though also. And when somebody, you got to push, what's push? Yeah. Right. I mean, I think that it, we really do have, we have a team. Yeah. It's not just a, a group of people. Right. I really do feel like we have a team. That's awesome. And it's rare. I think hiring people is going to be one of the hardest things to do. It's yeah, it's very difficult because you're not just hiring that person. Yeah. Right. For me anyway. And when we, when we go through that exercise, it's making sure that that person will fit within the team. Mm-hmm. We, we, we call it like, we've got the family, right? Like we have a four hands family. We want to make sure that we're not disrupting that family. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's not only important for the group, it's important for that new singular person coming into that group to make sure that there's going to be a bond. Sure. Well, and, and, you know, St. Louis is a small city in a lot of ways. And it's like, I, I think word gets out if something's not cool, hmm. you know, or if there is some sort of disturbance in the force Yeah, uh, and people learn that quickly and they're like, I'm not going to go there. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're, they're not as authentic as they seem to be. Yeah. Nowadays you have uh, fucking apps that basically <laughs> compartmentalize that, you know, aside from Yelp and Glassdoor and all those kinds of things. But I think that at the heart of it, people know if you are authentic and know what you're, you know what you're about and, and truly trying to do the best job that you can. I think that came out, that was, uh, and I, you know, we don't have to talk about this, but there was that weird circumstance that happened <laughs> with the other brewery in town. And I just loved how you guys handled it. I thought it was truly uh, remarkable. Instead of going on an offense, you just dealt with it. Yeah, that was one of the harder yeah. experiences that I'd ever been a part of. And, um, you know, I'm not really able to say anything much sure. about that. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, once we figured everything out, it was more for us like, let's put this to bed. Yeah. Right. So we can finally just start focusing on what we need to focus on. It was drama. And uh, I'm, that's what, listen, if anybody knows me, they know that that is the one thing that I'm never interested ever right. is drama. I mean, it's just like, I, uh, I don't run away from very many things. I will sprint from yeah. drama. I'm just not interested. I'm too busy. Sure. We're all too busy. We all have a lot of other better things to, to deal with. Yeah. I um, like to, I just say, whatever it is, tell me what it is. Okay. Yeah. Good. Deal with it. All right. Yeah. And put it in my rear view. Yep. I mean, that's the best way to, when anything like that in, you're encountered with, it's just like... Fuck that drama. Yeah. I'm, you know, I don't you know who I am. Do you it. know who I am? Here's the truth. If you doubt me, I will prove to you why I'm not. Yep. And let's just keep moving forward. Agree. As a, as a company and as a community. 
Well, and it's also really important, you know, when we're put in different situations, I'm not just looking out for myself. We have 44 sure. people that we're looking out exactly. for. Exactly. And um, the well-being of all of them is unbelievably important. It's the tribe within the tribe. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, that's the life force. Was there some, uh, did you get, did you and Urban Chestnut, did something happen in a positive respect after that fact? Something set up? Well, so the, the original thing wasn't. I know with, that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, we're. Yeah, we just raised seventy grand. Okay. Yeah, I, we I, just raised seventy thousand dollars for Mission St. Louis, which is an unbelievable uh, nonprofit based in North City mm-hmm. um, that we work really closely with. Sue McCullough, uh, owner of Major Brands, had this really cool uh, barrel from Maker's Mark mm-hmm. that she did a project called Women Who Whiskey. Oh, and cool. raised like three hundred thousand dollars through that whiskey. Oh wow! Um, and then she gave us that barrel. We filled half of that barrel with Madagascar, Urban Chestnut put in uh, the other half with like this big English barley wine. Yeah. Aged it for a year, bottled it, and raised $70,000 through sure. a single bourbon barrel full of beer for Mission St. Louis called Beer for Good. <laughs> and um, yeah, like that's the collaboration you want to see. Like us and right. Urban, like we'll battle out in the market, right? And that's mm-hmm. fine. That's best for the customer. Yeah. Right? Like, if we want to, we everybody wants to be the best, right? I mean, I yeah, think you want to yeah. be the best. And for us to be able to come together and do that speaks volumes about where we're at. Right, and the right? best doesn't I mean, necessarily mean volume no, all the time. No, not at all. Right. Um, but yeah, no, we were super happy to be a part of that project. It was great to kind of reconnect with David Wolf and his team during that project. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, at the end of the day, $70,000 in one day. I think it's, you know, all of that in the hindsight, it's an anecdote of the city. It's like, yeah, there is a bunch of silly shit that can happen, a lot of gossip and drama. But then I think there's an overwhelming amount of people that don't really give a uh, shit about all that, and they just want to work together and make good things happen and actually help people. Yeah, and I would say that's the majority. Yeah, but I think the the negative people, it's amplified, right, because of social media. Yeah and mass media and and mainstream media. But I think if you sit people down like this one-on-one and talk to them, then you actually get the act, the correct vibe of what's going on here. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, all I'm trying to do is broadcast that one-on-one dynamic that you have when you talk to someone out to the rest of the city and kind of increase that pride and that vibe. Um, so, like I said, I saw those Forbes articles, and it was interesting because obviously it was talking about all the acquisitions and uh, the insane ballast point story. I still, which is can't just took a whole new like last it. month took a whole new. Uh, they got purchased right from some small Chicago brew. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Brewery. Small brewery based in Chicago. I think they did 750 barrels last year. So for people that don't know, Ballast Point was purchased by Constellation Constellation Brands for a billion and then was purchased after two years. Yeah, yeah, that's about right. uh, By a small Chicago brewery doing 750 barrels. For sub 100 million. For sub 100 million. And I know that there is a big investor in that small Chicago brewery, obviously. But the... (laughs) Just that, I think that is a, a pretty good example of what happened. Like, that was a literal bubble burst in the traditional craft beer sense. 
Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I also think that that was a bad buy, a bad sure. buy by Constellation. Constellation's made a couple like really bad moves. Yeah. Um, that being one of them. Well, I also think there was a, a flurry of billion dollar company, uh, news hype as well. Like once some of the startups start selling for a billion dollars, mm-hmm. then there was this kind the of tequila like tequila brand. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Casamigos. Yeah. Um, there was this, uh, Oh, what else can sell for a billion dollars? Yeah. But if you just look <laughs> at the trajectory of, of beer at that time, um, the largest multiple before Ballast Point was Firestone Walker. Yeah. And it was like $1,300 or $1,400 a barrel. Mm-hmm. And that was the most premium purchase. And then, you know, six, eight months later, Ballast Point's like $2,400 a barrel, $2,600 wow. a barrel. And that was off 350,000 barrels or 450,000 barrels. And now they're just purchased for less than 100 million <laughs> and they're like 175,000 barrels. Um, it's, that's just. It's mind-boggling. It really is. Yeah, and I think, you know, do you, I wouldn't think that you would, but like, do you think about acquisition ever? Because as a small business owner, you know, if somebody walked up to me with a, a amount of money, I can't necessarily say that I'd say no if I saw that it was empowering my future plans. Yeah. You know, is that something you've had to ever think about? or that you can even talk about. <laughs> I mean, I feel like anybody sitting in this chair that would say, no, I haven't thought about that. Sure. You're fibbing. Right. Right. And that's pretty transparent. Yeah, of course you think about it. Um, but you think about what does that look like, right? Like yeah. w- what is that dollar amount? And then what do you do with that? Right. Um, you know, I don't think that we're, we're not going to be in that situation, so it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that what I would do with that. And I think that number one is, it would be a benefit to my entire team, mm-hmm. uh, not just me. That's one hundred percent truthful. Uh, but again, with there such a saturation in the market, I don't feel like that's going to happen. So my goal is to continue to build, you know, a company with uh, with good equity, yeah, and that shows good profit, so that I continue to do more things and treat the team as the best I possibly can. Yeah. Um, so that's the way that I look at it. And the four hands are me, Meg, and Fisher Rowan. Those are our two kiddos. And um, Rowan now is 12. He never really has taken a tremendous interest in the brewery. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I think it's because I spend so much time there. Sure. Right? I think that there's a little bit of him like that maybe doesn't love it. Yeah. Because that's a lot of my day. Yeah. yeah. But most recently, he's kind of coming out of his shell a little bit and saying, What do you do? <laughs> I, I want to do it. Yeah. You know, I really want to do that when I get older, dad, when I graduate from college, can I work for the brewery? Like, I, I think that I would really love to do that. And the answer is no. <laughs> like, no, you're, you don't, you're not just going to go work at the brewery. Mm. You know, like you graduate from college and if it's still an industry or a path that you feel passionate about, mm-hmm. go work for Gallo. Yeah. Right. Let's go work for Sierra Nevada. Yeah. Go work for one of the best and brightest in the industry. Yep. Show your that like that you really are passionate about it. Yeah. Like learn more than I can teach you right. and then come in. Right. But no keys are just given, <laughs> brother. Uh, That's gotta, great. You've got to earn your path. And I also don't want to think my kids ever just are going to get anything. Yeah. Right. Like, well, I, I mean, think that's the problem is like, uh, you know, the I just saw a quote, the overdisciplined child is as ill equipped as the underdisciplined child. 
and you can take that into all sorts of things. If you're handing your kids the key to the to the to the company right off the bat, or even you know that can take a lot of forms, giving them a position that they don't necessarily know what they're doing. Sure, you know, uh, but at the same time, you don't want your kid to have to suffer. And yeah, you know, I think that that's kind of the modern without having kids of my own, that's kind of like the modern uh, parental issue uh, of how much do I make my kids struggle and how much do I help them out? I have two things that I tell my kids, both me and Megan, and I don't care what you do in life. Yeah, I want you to be passionate about what you do. Hmm. And you will have two things. You will be polite and you will work hard. Hmm. And that's it. Yeah, I don't care. I don't care who you date. I don't care what you decide to, what path you decide to take. Yeah, you will be passionate, hopefully, about what you do, but you will be polite and you will work hard. Right, and that's it. I think with those two, kind of the the pillars of your foundation. Yeah, you will be successful in life. Yeah, it's so interesting because I know that my parents never had this kind of conversation with each other, or even with their coworkers or peers. Yet, I feel that they instinctually taught me that hmm. uh, without ever having to say it. So it's it's interesting to me. I think it's good. It's always good to self-reflect, but I, I think it's interesting now that I'm sure you've had that conversation with some of your friend, uh, your son's friends, dads, and like you know, just trying to figure out how to raise these kids. And it, it is interesting to compare that openness to the mystery of you know growing up when we did. Yeah, it's so much different. It is so much different. It's like my parents you know, fingers crossed did a good job, but like, uh, (laughs) they didn't really talk about things as much, you know? Yeah, I mean, my parents never told me what I'm telling my kids, but indirectly, they absolutely did. Exactly. Right, like I held the door open. I had to figure it out too. It was please and thank you, yes ma'am, no ma'am. And I started working when I was really young. Yeah. So, I mean. And more corporeal, uh, (laughs) more more physical. uh, uh, Absolutely damage being done not, not you know hopefully not to any but i got my ass beat <laughs> <laughs> and nowadays obviously that's not anything anybody wants to do no or or you know legally probably can do <laughs> no. yeah i don't think so i'm yeah uh, but that's so you know that's a uh, uh that's the that's the quandary right is because difficult aspects of childhood make you a more important in, more interesting person. Mm. And if you have too easy of a childhood, you know, stereotypically, you're going to be kind of a shithead, Mm. you know? And so it's like, how do I then determine that balance of allowing my kid to struggle or coming in and helping and, and getting their back if they have even an adult bully, like a teacher that's being a dickhead to them. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a complicated thing. I don't think it's gotten any easier. I just think that we're more aware of it and able to more easily pull upon our own experiences that we had when we were kids. I also think it's okay to struggle. Yeah, and I totally. think it's, it's super important to be able to figure out mentally how to get out of that It's good to be broke. Situation. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. When yeah. I quit, the second year I quit, I was under the poverty level, you know? Yeah. And because the recession hit. Yep. And it was the most creative year I had and the most driven, like, I'm going to get that money. I'm going to get that money. I'm going to get it, you know, like, and then you get it and then you realize it's just money. (laughs) I agree. 
So we can, I'll have some kids, I'll pop some out and then, uh, well, not me, but someone <laughs> will pop some out and then we can come back and have another dad podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you what though. I mean, it is um, such a fun part of life. Oh yeah. I mean, it's great. I, uh, I learned so, so much from my kids. Right. Um, I mean, talk about being inspired. Yeah. I am. We try and be inspired by a lot, but yeah, Rowan and Fish do a pretty good job of it. I mean, it's, you know, it is instinctual. It's biological. It is how you, it, scientifically, it is your purpose for living is to recreate and have kids and offspring. And then, you know, don't spiritually and mentally, yeah, don't fuck <laughs> it up. Like, I, I, yeah, I, I can't speak to it, obviously, but I completely agree with and understand everything that you're saying. Um, that was a nice little interlude. <laughs> so moving forward, it is, the coast is, is, does it feel hazy? Like no, all these different beverages? Clear. Okay. It really is super clear right now. I mean, we, um, I think last year we, uh, we saw good growth last year, but it was very much just like kind of making sure that we're working within our, our boundaries. Mm-hmm. And which allowed us some extra mental energy to start looking at other opportunities and creating possibly some new brands, getting sure. into some new categories, uh, maybe opening up uh, other locations as well. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we does, have... Does beer take a backseat just because the anticipated growth isn't as crazy as it has been in the past few years? Our plan for beer this year is more exciting than I think it's ever been. That's cool. Um, and that doesn't mean like a lot of fancy. Sure. But I mean, it really, we have such a detailed approach for this year. Um, you know, a lot of it, it also does come with new. Yeah. Um, because we're seeing that's what the customer wants, right? If you come out with a new brand, that first year is really good. Mm -hmm. Second year is okay. Third year is down 14%. Sure. And that's just what we have witnessed throughout our experience. So yeah, we have seven new brands coming this year. Um, but we're really, we're controlling them. Mm. Um, so it's not going to add to a tremendous amount of volume, uh, but there's this give and take of staying relevant while continuing to build a brand. And those seven brands are kind of like the relevant brands. Mm-hmm. Um, but beer is clear. We've got a great plan in place. Um, we feel super good about where we're at with major brands, our local wholesaler. We've got a really good plan for Chicago. And then we're opening up Wisconsin. Yeah. So we've got a new market that we're going to be able to play in a little bit as well. Spirits really are our mission this year is just maintaining what we have. Yeah. You know, we went from a $35,000 brand to a $1.3 million brand in a year. So now it's just, wow. it's maintaining that volume. It's really taking a look at all those new SKUs, finding new points of distribution, making sure we're telling the right story, being very diligent on how we're going to market. Mm-hmm. And then we're opening up Tennessee and we're opening up Wisconsin with Spirits. Interesting. So, um, and then we've got a new brand that we'll be launching in April uh, that we're pretty excited about. It's a little too early to talk about, sure. but that's going to be new for us. And then what we're looking to do is making sure that as uh, trends ebb and flow, we've got some uh, important ships, right, and boats that can kind of even out uh, that kind of overall volume or overall revenue that we're looking for as an organization. Yeah, that's my question, I guess, is how much of it is, you know, what's the balance between chasing a trend and trying your best to, you know, I guess there's three aspects to that, chasing a brand, 
staying with what you're doing and then trying to invent a trend or to bring something new that's not in the in the market yet do you yeah. have to like divvy up uh, percentages of your focus towards those three things in order to have sustainability as a company you know i think that you just you need to um I think you need to surround yourself with people that are, are good within that discipline, right? Mm-hmm. And like I um I feel like you need to make sure that you have enough headspace to to have a proper marketing plan for all of them. Mm-hmm. Um I think that you need to make sure that you understand like what that runway looks like. Sure. Like you need to understand what that target customer looks like. There's a lot of analytics that go into it. It's the days I think of just like building a brand and throwing it out there are way over. Yeah. Um but I think that we do a pretty solid job at understanding like what we're about to get into. Mm-hmm. And I think that's because we're also passionate about it. Eliminating right? like, guesswork with, you know, that kind of goes back to how you developed your business plan in the first place is trying to eliminate all the guesswork with either of those three components. Well, I think that we, it's easier for us also because when you look at your target customer, mm-hmm. we are our target customer, yeah, yes. right? So we're not building something for somebody else. Right. We're building something for us. Yeah. That makes it way easier. And you follow right? your own curiosity. Yeah. Like I'm not going to get into box wine. Mm. I'm not super interested in box wine. Mm-hmm. Right. So I don't have to worry about that. Like I don't know what that customer is looking for in terms of branding or taste profile. Sure. With beer, I feel like I do. Yeah. You know, we do. With spirits, I feel like we do. You know, if we get into this... Um, like can, seltzers, potentially. Yeah, seltzer, THC, uh, CBD. Like, I feel like we do. And that kind of... Right? I mean, it's... Um, it was... It kind of came out of nowhere, right? But it was also very obvious with the reoccurrence of LaCroix. Yeah. And then people were like, shit, we can throw booze in this. <laughs> it was that simple. It was that simple. That's crazy. I'm surprised it honestly took that long. When you just take a look at trends and you see right. LaCroix and just how... that I mean, it'd been around for a long time. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, boom. Yeah. And somebody decided to make it 4.5%. <laughs> <laughs> and now White Claw, last year, oh my mixed God. pack, over 4th of July weekend, sold more than Budweiser. Oh, my God. It's because it is just, you know, I remember when Truly came out and there was that kind of saturation again on a much shorter timeline. I think I had two years ago, probably a hundred Trulys. And that was like the blue moon experience that I had Mm. over a shorter period. Like everything is getting condensed in a lot of respects. And that makes me feel a little weird. You know, when there is so much condensation, there is so much new product, there is so many new flavor profiles, there is not even to mention content, you know. Um, I, f- I feel that like there is going to be some sort of point where it's like people are overwhelmed, even locally. I kind of think we're almost there. Yeah. And so then what yeah. is that new, like, uh, nobody knows, but... What would you say is the the next step then once people are so overwhelmed by brands and and you can't even name a beer because every beer has almost been named something similar? Yeah, we're there also. <laughs> um, yeah, I, you know, I feel like when, when we speak within the industry, every category is saturated. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's bourbon, tequila, vodka. It's true, yeah. Uh, craft beer, craft soda. I mean, maybe not craft soda, but... Almost everything is saturated. Yeah. So, you know, I think that you just, where do you want to go? 
what do you, what do you, what do you want it to look like? What is your intention also? Like, are you building this brand as a forever brand? Mm -hmm. Are you building this brand as a three or four year brand that could potentially just like block what is happening in the market? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I see seltzers here. It's not going away. Mm-mm. I mean, not not in the next couple of years. No, uh, they're they're showing and predicting tremendous growth within that category. Sure. When not your father's root beer came out, I was not worried about it. Yeah. Right? Like, it, no, man. Like I mean, a year, it's, it's enough it's, sugar to kill a horse. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm just <laughs> I don't feel like that's working. Right. I mean, this seltzer, it's um, it is a very it's a better version. Yeah. Of what Seagrams and Bartles and James did. Yes. In the early 90s. Totally. It's a better version because it is low-cal. Yeah. Um, well, and I think it all, it obviously stems to people wanting to have healthier lives. Which is a trend that I hope doesn't go away. Right. Yeah. And I think that it's, you know, people don't want to get fat. Yeah. <laughs> they don't want to, they don't want to get a beer gut. Yeah. Uh, they still want to have a good time. That's obvious. And that's why, you know, the rise of THC and weed and, and everything has been occurring at the same time. The restrictions and the prohibition behind that are finally pulling back. And, uh, you know, by and large, people are more and more educated about what they're putting into their bodies. You know, it's like move beyond brand loyalty. You know, back in the day, it was just like, yeah, yeah, pick up a 12-pack of Budweiser or Bud Light and, you know, we'll just have a good time. Don't care. I don't know what's in this. Who cares? It doesn't matter. Um, and now there's just a greater amount of personal accountability for what you're doing every day. Yeah, but I think also if done well, yeah. right? Like if you're choosing like the the whatever or the the seltzer, the beer, the spirit, and and we're looking at this from like a quality standpoint, there's still enough room for everybody. Sure, for everybody within like from a category standpoint. Yeah, within that category is going to start getting more busy. Yeah, interesting. At least for the foreseeable future, definitely. Yeah, and then it's up to the customer, right? Inter- the customer. Yeah has that the end vote it's what we as customers purchase um is there any interesting um smaller craft breweries that you've seen that kind of have a different vibe from every every other brewery out there yeah i mean i think that like in different ways like scratch yeah in ava illinois i think it's yes like was going to go there for my birthday very like super cool like they're great people and Mm -hmm. you know i mean they're doing stuff that's like way off the beaten path for sure that's super inspiring uh and then really in fluorescent missouri narrow gauge and and what Mm -hmm. jeff and his team are doing i mean um it's on trend but like they do everything really really well Hmm. um yeah i mean i would say we are very lucky in St. Louis to have as many great breweries as we have in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, if you, the, whether you like saisons or IPAs or stouts or lagers, whatever you like, you can find an amazing example of it mm-hmm. that's brewed within thirty minutes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's just like we uh, we're, we're very lucky. lucky and food. Our food yeah, scene food, is getting coffee, ridiculous. Beer, yeah. I mean, architecture. I mean, I think that St. Louis is a gem. I do too. That's why I've been here my whole life. Yeah. I love it. My wife's from Philadelphia. And when she came to St. Louis, she was like, yeah, it's just like a hidden little gem. Yeah. And I, I like, you know, being a part of that story, if even in a small respect, it's it, it kind of feels to me like if we all grew up with this giant world's largest company at one point, Anheuser-Busch, and that's gone. 
and the ideas behind what they were trying to do fractured into a million little startup companies. Hmm. And that yeah. we're all trying to bring back that kind of idea behind, uh, uh, and, and even greater, you know, and trying to unite everybody in this city. Yeah, and I think it's working at a certain point, and then really think, thank God that we have the Taylor family now also. Right? Yeah, that, I mean, I've we said have that so many had, times, man. Right, yeah. but like, now we're really understanding yeah. what they're doing. Yep. They've been doing it. They're the new bushes. <laughs> right, but now we're understanding it. And right. um, I honestly, I could not be more excited about what's happening in St. Louis right now. Yeah. The next two, three, four years are are just going to be so important for the infrastructure of our city. And we're excited to, to be a, hopefully a part of it. Completely um, agree. Yeah. I'm, I'm stoked about it. Yeah. What, any uh, things about the soccer team that you can, are you guys just going to be there to support? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that we still have a little bit of time on sure. that and we're having conversations <laughs> about like how we want to, to try and see if we can make anything like that work. At the end of the day, I'm just happy they're here, yeah. right? Just as a St. Louis City resident and father and sport fan Former and soccer, soccer fan, like I'm pumped <laughs> about it, man. Like, you know, being on that Ferris wheel now yeah. is yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. Just wait until that stadium's right across Market Street. Like that's right, going to be amazing. Yeah. It, um, the... The foundation is shifting right now. It is. Yeah. And in a very positive manner. And I think the last decade was so important um, from a culinary scene, from a coffee scene, from a beer scene, right? From there, A lot happened in St. Louis over the last decade. Um, it's going to be so interesting to see what this next decade looks like. Yeah, I completely agree, man. Um, and I hope it sustains. You know, I was in some mini focus group for the new MLS team and they were asking me, what is one word or phrase that encapsulates St. Louis? And I've always said St. Louis is the eternal underdog <laughs> in a loving yeah. manner. Yeah. Um, and in, in, a, in somewhat of a beneficial manner, in a lot of ways in a negative demeanor as well with social happenings and whatnot. But I've always loved that like we're not on the radar. And mm. you can still be a, one of those people that helps put the city back on the radar and it makes an example for other cities to grow. And this is the time to do that, I think. So it's, it's pretty exciting. Um, this isn't a St. Louis only podcast. I always say that, but you know, I think that this episode definitely is St. Louis specific and trying to take that energy and, and put it back into the city. And, uh, yeah, it's awesome. Anything else you want to touch on? What are we drinking? Uh, so this is street soda. Street Sodi. Street Sodi is uh, kind of a hazy IPA collaboration when that we this did come was out? shared um, last week, two weeks ago. Oh, nice. Yeah. So shared it's side delicious. project, Corey King and his crew, uh, lovely human beings, amazing beer. Yes. And so we uh, we brewed this with them and brought it back. And uh, so, yeah. That's awesome. And the seasonal sp- release. The Spirits line, uh, next thing coming out, or can you even mention? Yeah. So we have our Spectro Amaro. Okay. Uh, which we've been doing now yeah. for about a year, and we'll be releasing a barrel-aged version of that, which awesome. we're super That's excited about. A barrel-aged tomorrow. Yeah. Has it ever been done? I don't know. I mean... I don't know of anything. <laughs> not at a, a regional level, Yeah. anyway. Sure. I mean, I'm sure it has been done. I mean, I, um, but yeah, so we've got... Uh, we're looking at a... We have it in one barrel right now. We'll be transferring it to another barrel. Um, but yeah, just kind of a fun take on that. Dude, that sounds incredible. 
uh, I appreciate your time coming on this podcast. I know no, you're man, a busy thank man. Thank you for your time. We finally locked it in. We did it. And, uh, you know, down the down the road, we can maybe just shoot the shit and have you back on. You can bring more beer over. Yeah, deal. <laughs> That's what I'm good at. And catch up on what's going on in the company and in the city. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Uh, thank you for having me. <laughs> right on, man. Uh, where can people find you? At Four Hansbury. There we go. Perfect. Appreciate it. Yep. Thanks, fam. Cheers. Thank you to everybody for listening to this podcast. A short and sweet one, talking about the world of beer. It's just an endless topic. Endlessly talking about one of my favorite beverages. How do you enjoy those beverages, especially if you're drinking from a can? You do it with Snakebite. That's right. Snakebiteco.com, the world's only maker of Fort Church Key and bottle opener. It's not just a bottle opener, it's a lifestyle, people. Snakebiteco.com, at Snakebiteco on Facebook and Instagram. Man, you know what? Let's even do Four Hands Brewery. They, they brought some beers to this podcast. He, get, he left some glasses for me. So I count that as sponsoring. The only things I've gotten so far are beer from Kevin Limp and honey from my man Blaine Deutsch. Honey and beer. Sounds like the promised land. Uh, upcoming over the next few weeks, we will have some very interesting guests. Crossing the divide of every interdisciplinary... I'm just making shit up here. But food, art, uh, religion is on the books, hopefully. Uh, and all sorts of other topics and, and interests that may have some interest to you. So keep listening. Keep going. We're trying to put these podcasts out. And when I say we, I mean M-E, me. Trying to put these fuckers out as quick as possible so that you don't forget about your boy, KK in the St. Louis. All right, I'm done. I'm botching this. Good night, y'all. <laughs> <laughs>